thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, finally, we're going to turn our attention to the chapter on religion in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's own social contract, or the social contract. Uh, You'll recall that Rousseau, we discussed this last week, based the legitimate authority of government on agreement or contract, much as John Locke and Thomas Hobbes had done before him. And as you'll recall from last week, there are Christians currently putting out materials in defense of liberty and I'll say civil liberty, to distinguish it from religious liberty, which is the right of a clean conscience before God that exists with or without civil liberty. So we have to be careful who we're reading and who we're following to make sure we're following the God of the Bible, not John Locke or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, worse yet, Thomas Hobbes. And And as I've mentioned before, too many Christians today are conflating religious liberty, which is a matter of conscience, with civil liberty and blurring the distinction between these two ideas. But as as a way of introduction to today's topic on religion, I've said that Rousseau's view of religion has led both to cancel culture and Christian nationalism. And I may not have time today to explain how these are two sides of the same coin. In fact, I'm sure I won't. But today we're going to make a good start on it, particularly with respect to Christian nationalism. And I'm going to start here by saying that this is a hard podcast for me for a number of reasons, but the first of which is that Rousseau's understanding of Christianity is, to be honest, too much like that which I took from the biblical teaching I got growing up in conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches. Now, I may have gotten that teaching wrong. It could have gone into my sinful little head and heart and gotten all twisted up. But whatever the case, whether it was sin distorting what I heard or what I heard was a distorted view of the Bible, Rousseau's view of religion and Christianity in particular is way too much like what I was reared on, what I understood, and I fear too much like that of many others today in Christianity. And that's what makes it hard because um, you may find some things where you're saying, yeah, 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 and then realize, whoa, that's what Rousseau was saying. That's what I've been taught. That's what my preacher preaches. But let me me begin with putting a little historical context into Rousseau's book. It was published in 1762, and as it relates to the French in particular, uh, he lived in Geneva. He was uh, sort of reared, you might say, under the Calvinist doctrines of Geneva, wound up in France, then later in his life went back to Geneva. But his book was essentially the, the manual, it was the Bible behind the French Revolution, you might say. And, and today you'll see why that's the case. 
Now, in France, um, in the Encyclopedia of Protestantism, uh, its author, Hans Hildebrand, said that on the eve of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is in 1572, the Huguenot community, which is essentially the French Calvinist, made up about 10% of the French population, the rest being Catholic. Now, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is noted as uh, having instigated certain assassinations of key uh, Calvinist uh, Frenchmen, Huguenots, and it was a wave of, of Catholic mob violence directed at these Huguenots. And there were the French Civil Wars and dissension and resistance to the Catholic Church and to the kings who were Catholic eventually led um, to the Edict of Fontainebleau in 1685. So, you know, we're dealing here a little over a hundred years after the Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And that Edict of Fontainebleau essentially um, revoked all the Protestant rights that had previously existed in France. So Rousseau is writing now about 77 years after the Edict of Fontainebleau when the Calvinists began to flee France in larger and larger numbers and the relationship between the Catholic Church and the king and the royalty became tighter and tighter. So you see, Rousseau is, is writing in light of this tension between Catholic and Reformed theology that actually began in Europe in the 1500s, and he's writing in light of the jurisdictional struggles between civil government and the various conceptions of the church that were then being debated. Now, I'll just give you a quick rundown of that conception because we often use the word the church and what does the church mean, but the one conception of the church where there was this tension with civil government that I meant, this jurisdictional struggle, was Catholicism, which had an ecclesiastical hierarchy and legal jurisdictions under the church. Remember, that's where canon law kind of came from and the concept of the church as an organism, but without a unifying corporate legal type structure. So the, the church was a, a, a mystical body, you could say. It, it had no corporate legal structure. And by that, I don't mean that, um, you know, a church today that incorporates to buy a piece of property and get insurance is, is what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a distinction really between an organism and something that's organized in a very corporate legal structure such as the Catholic Church was and is. So, so those were those tensions. And he's writing in light of these two kinds of tensions, okay? And, and really, what is taking place here in these tensions and these working out of these tensions is the development of what we call Western civilization. So when you hear people talking about getting rid of Western civilization, you're talking about getting rid of that, which came out of these various tensions that uh, admittedly had at their foundation what is the relationship between God and the church and civil government, okay? And so when you want to get rid of Western civilization, you essentially want to get rid of 
religion, at least the Christian varieties, let's say. You want to get rid of Catholicism, and you want to get rid of certainly Calvinism, right? So that's where we are. And what Rousseau is trying to do, like Hobbes and Locke before him, is to find a way to have a unity in the social order that obviously hadn't existed for a long time, right? And, and clearly, at least in his mind, the foundation for a unified, harmonious social order had to be grounded in something other than Catholicism or Calvinism. So, as we discussed, I believe it was last week, Rousseau grounded his conception of all rights and government and the social order, those are his words, not mine, as being that not derived from nature, but grounded, quote, upon agreement. Okay, now let me comment here. I would agree that the social order is not derived from nature in the abstract or certainly in a nature that's not given by God. Again, as we said last week, there's nothing in the right social order that is not grounded in God and the givens or the laws by which all created things exist and are ordered in relation to each other so that there is a harmony. So think of the garden. Everything had a law pertaining to its nature, the animals, the vegetation, mankind, and there was a law of God by which all of those things existed in creation in harmony and unity. I, I want to drive this point home again uh, before I move on to the religion part. While we might say that God in his providence has allowed some governments, like ours here in the United States, to come to an agreement on the arrangements and the means by which God's authority is exercised, we would never say the social order nor the authority of civil government itself can ever be based strictly upon the agreement of men. And this is where, again, I'll say some Christians today get confused. They collapse the idea of the operation of civil government by agreement, such as our Constitution and our state constitutions, into sovereign power in civil government arising out of or existing by virtue of agreement. Those are two different things. So let's continue on. And what we find is Rousseau, not in the social contract, but in another of his writings, making this statement that I think is very important. If there were a people made up of gods, it would govern itself democratically. So perfect a government is not suitable for men. Now, we would say that statement is untrue. <laughs> One, we're not made up of gods. But if we were in our state prior to the fall, we would be governed not democratically, but theocratically by God um, through the work of his Holy Spirit. So he's wrong there. But perhaps you get his point that that if we were all really good people, we could figure out a way to all get along and govern ourselves democratically. He also says this, this is the great problem to be solved in politics, to find a form of government 
that puts the law above man. Now that's a true statement. How do how do we how do we become a nation of laws and not of men? That's the, the point that he's making. He continues, if such a form cannot be found, and frankly, I confess, I think it can't, I think we should go to the opposite extreme and put one man as far above the law as we can, and that's actually Thomas Hobbes, he continues, and consequently create the most arbitrary despotism possible. I would like the despot to be a god. In short, I see no middle way between the most severe democracy and the most perfect Hobbesianism, putting the law in the hands of one person. For the conflict between men and laws which puts the state into perpetual civil war is the worst of all political states. So he's trying to find, again, as I said, unity in the social order. He's got to get rid of God because wars of religion throughout Europe and in France in particular uh, have, have demonstrated that religion just leads to disunity in the social order. So he says, well, we'll just ground it in the social order and we can get rid of God. Now, as, as I've said, this is a chapter on religion. So, <laughs> you know, you think, well, that's sort of oxymoronic. How, how do you sound like you need to get rid of God uh, to have a unified social order and, and yet have a chapter on religion? And we'll be getting to his kind of religion probably in next week's episode. But he goes on now to, to explain how he understands Christianity. And it sounds a little too familiar to me with what I once thought and what often passes under the guise of evangelicalism. So Rousseau says that in pagan times, every state had its own cult and its own gods. And of course, we see that in the Bible, don't we? And he says, but when Jesus comes onto the scene, this is how he describes the situation. Quote, the Romans had spread their religion and their gods along with their empire, and had often themselves adopted those of vanquished people by granting to both alike the rights of the city. And of course, we, we know that too. You, in, in Rome, you could have gods as long as the god of Caesar, ultimately, was the supreme god. You could have all kinds of lesser gods, but don't ever deny that Caesar is God. And you'll recall that's the story we ran into in, in the book of Acts where they're saying they're, these people have come and disturbed the whole world. They're claiming there's somebody who's God other than Caesar, right? So, so he's, I think, correct there. And he says, and it's by virtue of this, I think this is interesting, that paganism finally became one and the same religion throughout the known world. So the empire of Rome allowed paganism to spread throughout the known world. And he says this, there was sort of a unity then in paganism, which I think is fascinating if we think to the days before the flood, where in a sense there was a unity of paganism. And he's saying that's what existed at the time Christ came, which Christ then brings a new creation even as God brought a new creation in the days of Noah. So Rousseau continues, it was under these circumstances that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom 
on earth. How many times have you heard people talk about Christianity is about a spiritual kingdom and plumb the depths of what did they mean by that spiritual kingdom? He continues, Christianity is a completely spiritual religion concerned solely with heavenly matters. The Christian's homeland is not of this world. What about the hymns? We're just a passing through. He does his duty, it's true, but he does it with a profound indifference toward success or failure of his efforts. After all, in this veil of tears, what does it matter whether we're free or in bondage? The essential thing is to get to heaven, and resignation is just one more means of doing so. I mean, does that not sound like, man, we're just pilgrims, we're aliens, we're strangers, we're just passing our way through. We want to get to heaven, to Beulah land, right? And what happens here doesn't really matter. Yes, I want to be Christian in my dealings with people, but I'm not trying to do anything about the social order, just just me and my family, you know, be a good employee. That's, that's all because it's a spiritual kingdom. We hear this all the time. In fact, I met somebody the other day and they were talking about their church and how it was a, a church that wasn't, um, hadn't fallen into progressivism and preached the word, you know, and all of this. And I thought, wow, that's exciting. And I went to the church's website and here's what I found. Everything they said about the infallibility and inerrancy of the word and God is creator and God is triune and, and the, the depravity of man, you might say, and, and the means of salvation and who Jesus Christ was, son and of God, and yet the son of man and without confusion of the two natures. I mean, you could be going right through it and you'd be saying, yeah, this all sounds like historic orthodox Christianity. And then it says this, heaven. Here's their little point on heaven. Heaven is the eternal dwelling place for all believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They then mention another topic and then the final topic, second coming. And listen to second coming. Jesus Christ will physically and visibly return to earth for the second time to establish his kingdom. This will occur at a date undisclosed by the scriptures. So in other words, there is no kingdom of God present in reality today. So where Colossians says you have been transferred, that's only in a spiritual sense. I'm, and, and so it's spiritualized, it becomes Gnosticized, it becomes disembodied, you might say. And I'm not sure why Jesus would come to earth at some point to establish a kingdom when we're all up in heaven. I mean, just put those two sentences together. Heaven's the eternal dwelling place, but Jesus is going to come to the earth to establish a kingdom. Now, I, I guess we're going to stay up in heaven, and then he's going to establish a kingdom here and convert some more people, and then he's going to rapture them out of here and take them to heaven while everybody else goes to hell. I don't know. This is just such a jumbled mess. It's just, and, and this is uh, ostensibly represented as a good, solid, biblical church. I need to get on back to Rousseau, but, but you see, Rousseau is really describing what passes as evangelical conservative Christianity today. It's all spiritual. There is no kingdom reality present, and we're all trying to get away to heaven. You might say then, well, how would this spiritual kingdom that Rousseau's talking about create a problem? Now, listen to what he says. It creates a problem. When Jesus came to establish this spiritual kingdom on earth, he, quote, separated the theological 
from the political system. And remember, he's just talked about how paganism and the governments were all just kind of run together. And there was uh, paganism throughout the known world. And he says, so Jesus comes and does this spiritual thing. And he said it separated the theology from the political system, which kept the state from remaining unified between the state and its gods. And it caused internal divisions that never ceased to trouble Christian peoples. He goes on to explain this. Now, since this new idea of an otherworldly kingdom could not have entered the minds of pagans, okay, and that's what we picture too, an otherworldly, it's somewhere else, you know, kingdom. It's not here. It's not present. We, we have to leave here to go there, okay? He said, so since this idea of an otherworldly kingdom could have never entered the minds of pagans, they always considered the Christians as true rebels who beneath a mask of hypocritical submissiveness were only seeking the right moment to make themselves independent and the masters and cleverly to usurp the authority that they pretended in their weakness to respect. This was the cause for the persecutions. See, they were, they were not having Caesar be the God which kept the unity between the spiritual, the theological, and, and the government, they were saying there's another king and another kingdom, and they were just waiting for the ball to drop for y'all to take over. And while you say you respect the king and you pray for the king, we know what's really going on. You're trying to take over. And then he says, what the pagans had feared happened. Then appearances changed. The humble Christians changed their tune. And this so-called otherworldly kingdom was soon seen under a visible ruler to become the most violent despotism on earth. What is he talking about? He's talking about the 11th century and the papal revolution and the investiture struggle where the church said, we're not going to let the king, the emperor, keep appointing our bishops and folks. The church is a separate entity and we're going to make our own appointments and that's when the canon law developed and that's what he's talking about. There was a visible ruler. It was the pope. And you had the Pope and you had the Emperor. He says, however, since there have always been civil laws in her prince, this dual power has caused a perpetual jurisdictional conflict, and this has made all good administration impossible in Christian states. Well, I would say today modernism would say the same. And it's kept people, he said, from finding out whether we are obligated to obey the master or the priest. This sacred cult has always remained or again become independent of the sovereign, which he's referring to here as the government, see, not God, and has lacked necessary connections to the state. So he says there were, in essence, two powers and two sovereigns. And then he adds this about Thomas Hobbes, who again wrote a century earlier, of all the Christian writers, the philosopher Hobbes is the only one who clearly saw the evil and its remedy. He was the only one, you see, who saw this evil uh, two sovereigns, God and the civil government, the temporal ruler and the spiritual ruler, the priest. And he says the problem that Hobbes faced, though, 
a hundred years earlier was was not that he was wrong, but what he said was hated because it was true. And in essence, the church hated Hobbes because he was right. The church should have been just strictly a spiritual entity, a kingdom outside of the realm of the world as it is and outside of government. And Hobbes, Hobbes saw that correctly and he said, we have to have government only by form of agreement and that agreement should put all the power in the hands of one ruler, which if you'll recall, is what Rousseau said earlier. We either wind up with a severe democracy or um, the power all in the hands of one rule, ruler, and that's Hobbes. So what Rousseau is trying to do in the balance of this chapter on religion is to take the best of Hobbes's theory, that of a social order and government grounded in agreement or consent, and then develop a religion that would work with it. It was to be a religion for the sake of the nation, not an objective religion for the sake of God in a nation, such as we discussed in the December 8th episode entitled Christians Who Destroyed Christianity, Trying to Protect It. The difference between an objective and a subjective religion. And a subjective religion can exist strictly in your head, be spiritual, and that spiritualism is Gnosticism and is heresy. And you see, this is where we get to Christian nationalism. It's a Christianity for the sake of a nation. It's not the concept of a nation for the sake of the glory of God. Now, that distinction can be hard to draw, and a lot of people are struggling with it. And the line between them is it's thin. It's sometimes hard to see. But we'll begin to work that out after we've delved further into his views on religion that lead to the cancel culture. And we'll talk about that next week. But I hope from today's episode you see this that by casting Christianity as spiritual only, Rousseau had cleared the decks not only for a subjective Christianity and one in our minds and our emotions and our feelings, but he's removed its influence from his dreams of that utopian state in which there's no disunity and only harmony, like the old Coca-Cola commercial. And, and to this utopian dream, I want to close today with a quote from Van Prensterer, who was Abraham Kuyper's mentor in the areas of government and politics. And what I'm going to quote you follows his observation that Rousseau had said there was no solution to the great problem to be solved, which you'll remember was having a form of government that puts the law above man. And the only solution, Rousseau seemed to think, was a severe democracy or the most perfect Hobbesianism. And to that, Van Prinsterer responds as follows. Van Prinsterer says, there is no better proof 
of the natural course of that fatal and ungodly teaching of which this eloquent sophist was the most fervent apostle, despite his attempts at disavowal. Yes, certainly, we need to find a law above man, and so it must be a law that man did not make. But this law, revealed law, divine law, you, referring to Rousseau, have abolished. And in addition to creating disorderly, in addition to creating disorder, anarchy, a war of all against all, you have to admit that as a result of your sublime efforts, you have no security against social convulsion other than arbitrariness and force. And that will lead us in to the discussion of cancel culture next week. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.